0: If someone cuts you off on the freeway, do you A. Yell a word or a phrase that Jesus probably doesn't know B. Use a hand gesture that isn't a friendly wave C. Speed up in front of them and cut them off D. All of the above E. Think to yourself, they must be having a rough day or F. Shrug it off On the one hand, that's kind of funny because maybe that's not even hypothetical for you. But on the other hand, it isn't, because some instances of people cutting someone else off have ended up in terrible car crashes, where people have been severely injured or even killed, and other people have just pulled out a gun and popped the other driver. If someone cuts you off on the freeway, it generally makes you mad. And anger, like road rage, can be really dangerous. So today, we're gonna to talk about anger. Looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone says to a brother or sister, racha is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So before we look at this, I just want to acknowledge that my, mar- my remarks are heavily dependent on Dallas Willard's insights. Uh, one of the most fundamental and dangerous challenges that people deal with is anger. In fact, Jesus kind of boils down the two fundamental challenges that we face as human beings. One of them is anger that we'll talk about this week, and the other is lust, and we'll talk about that next week. Anger is dangerous. It can be devastating to our relationships, to our community, and even to our own personal health. Anger can ruin marriages. It can sour relationships between parents and their kids. It can ruin relationships between siblings. It can devastate a church, a school, a community, or even a state. It can eat us up on the inside. I love what Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite authors, says about anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come to savor the last toothsome morsel of both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger is one of the biggest problems people deal with, and that's why Jesus starts with the topic of anger. So Jesus is forming a new community. A community with different goals and different values where the goal is to know God and to be like God. And the values are to love God and to love other people. Jesus is creating a redemptive community where people can and are expected to change. A community of people who are being transformed from what they used to be into what God has created them to be. And if you want to truly transform people, You have to start with anger. And in order to emphasize the differences between the new community that he's creating and the current community, Jesus introduces this pattern that he uses throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It goes like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. So in this instance, he says, you have heard that it was said, so here's the conventional wisdom, here's the community norms, this is what's accepted behavior or not accepted behavior. It's the reasonable expectation, this is the done thing. But I tell you, but this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's radically different. It almost seems unrealistic because the community that Jesus is creating is radically different. So you have heard it said, you shall not murder. It's in the 10 commandments. It's forbidden in every society. We know that it's bad. I think we can all agree on this, that you should not murder. So you've heard that it was said you shall not murder, but I tell you, Anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. And notice subject to judgment is exactly the same phrase for both murder and anger. The consequences are both the same. So is Jesus completely out of touch here? Anger and murder are not the same thing. So why does he link anger to murder? Why does he equate them? Well, first, what exactly is anger? Anger is the willingness to harm or to hurt someone. Like when you get cut off and you want to jump ahead in front of that person and cut them off. You want them to have to slam on their brakes, knowing full well that they might have an accident. Even our words are different when we're mad. We use words that we normally wouldn't use. We say things that are specifically designed to hurt people. And then we excuse our words or our actions by saying things like, I don't care, I'm mad. Which points out part of the problem. When we get mad, we lose control. And that's when it becomes dangerous. I have the will and I have the means to hurt you. Anger leads to lack of control. And it gets us on a path that can harm other people. It leads to escalation. If you get mad at someone, they'll probably get mad at you in return. Anger will provoke anger. It won't cause resolution or understanding. When we're on the path of anger, we're on the path to do harm to other people. And now that we're willing to harm someone, it's really not all that hard to see the connection between anger and murder. And if we're going to be part of the kingdom of God, the new reality that's being created post-Easter, Jesus is really concerned that anger not be something that controls us, that anger isn't something that characterizes our community and the way that we relate to each other. Yeah, but isn't there a bunch of stuff in the Bible that says it's all right to be angry and that we should be angry sometimes, like with righteous indignation? Uh, no. No. The Bible talks about anger a lot, and it generally, generally, it is to put limits on it. Like in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't let the devil have a foothold. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Don't hang out with angry people. Don't keep company with hotheads. Bad temper is contagious. Don't get infected. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's what the Bible says about anger. Yeah, but God gets angry. Yeah, but you can trust God's character. You can trust God with stuff, that I wouldn't trust myself with. If anyone can be angry and not sin, I'm pretty sure it's God. Everyone else, I have my doubts. So let's not find out. Well, sometimes anger drives change. I mean, think of some particularly egregious issue. If you're not angry about certain things, there's something wrong with you. I would still argue that anger's not the best way of handling things. Anger is not very productive. Anything that you can do when you're angry, you can do better when you're not, with less collateral damage. And honestly, what does it say about you that you'll only do something if you're mad? It's not that we ignore what's wrong. We have to act against things that are wrong, but we have to do that without getting angry. There's also another side to this. Jesus is concerned with your heart, not just your behavior. Jesus is concerned about you being transformed in your real innermost being. Maybe you'll never physically murder someone, but if that's what you're harboring in your heart, that anger will still end up being devastating. One of my very favorite preachers of all time, a guy named Fred Craddock, used to tell a story about a grandma who, whose family admired her so much because she was unperturbable. imperturbable, Nonperturbable? I don't know how you negate that in English. She never got upset. Anytime something bad happened to her or whatever, instead of getting mad, she would just simply sing hymns. And people admired her relationship to God, admired her self-control, admired that she didn't get mad, that she would just sing hymns. Well, later on in life, tragically, Grandma got dementia, and she began to swear like a sailor. And her whole family said, Now we know what Grandma was really thinking when she was singing those hymns. So imagine, Matthew says that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So imagine you lose the ability to edit yourself. What's in your heart? Because that's liable to come out. And that's why Jesus wants us to be changed on the inside, not just on the outside. Change on the inside leads to change on the outside. It doesn't really work well the other way. So what do we do? Stop being angry. And I'm not talking about denying or repressing your feelings. I'm just talking about not being angry. Angry is fundamentally a learned response. So unlearn it. I think there's a couple of steps, I didn't say easy steps, I think there are a couple of steps to help us learn to deal with anger issues. And the first of them is to understand that, is an, that it is an act of our will. We decide to get angry. So what do you do about that? Well, surrender your will to God. It will mean that you don't have to have your way, and that's freeing. So say you didn't get the job, They gave it to someone who is in your estimation, not nearly as qualified as you are. So now you have an option as to how you'll react. It could be the end of the world, it could be an inconvenience, it could be something you get mad at, or it's an opportunity for prayer and trust. God, I thought I had this, but I'm trusting that you've got something that's just right for me. So maybe your life situation is not what you thought it would be at this point in your life. Maybe it's about marriage or lack thereof or kids or finances and you have an option. You can get mad about that or you can trust God in the middle of it. Maybe the the next time you discover that life is not fair, that can make you mad or bitter or you can just acknowledge that life is not fair and thank God for the good things in your life. Sometimes just seeing God's provision helps us not be angry, which kind of leads to an obscure but extremely important story about a guy named Lamech. It comes out of Genesis chapter 4, and it's a follow-up of the Cain and Abel story. Cain and Abel are the two brothers. They were like the, the third and fourth people. And Cain kills Abel over a dispute that they have. And because Cain is the first murderer, he introduces this into the perfect Eden. God casts him out of Eden and says there's going to be all sorts of things that Cain is going to have to bear. And then Cain says this in Genesis chapter 4. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So that's what Cain is really worried about. The original murderer is worried about being murdered. But God said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over, which is a way of saying, I'm gonna protect you. Um, the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Later on in that chapter, verse 23, Lamech comes along. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. It's a somewhat bizarre story. The first thing that you notice about it is how quickly the violence escalates. Lamech definitely has some rage issues. But ultimately what's happening in the story is that Lamech is not satisfied with the protection that God has offered his forefather Cain. Lamech looks at the protection that God has given him and he says, what God has promised me is not good enough. And so he gets mad and he takes things into his own hands. Is what God has promised you good enough? Can you be satisfied with what God has provided to you? Even if the parking place God has provided isn't right up front because somebody else took it, even though it was rightfully yours, and now instead the parking place God has for you is in the back. Can you still trust God's provisions? One of the prayers from my devotions this week really struck me. The prayer says, I ask for the grace to let go of my own concerns and be open to what God is asking of me. To let myself be guided and formed by my loving creator. Can you trust God? Because that will help you not be angry. And then be thankful. Thankfulness is a response to the goodness of God in your life. Complaining or anger is a sign of not trusting God's provisions. So there are things that could make us angry. There are things that we need to handle in relationships. We should speak the truth and we should live in it, but we shouldn't do it with anger because we know that God will take care of us. So I think we're really called to give up the right to anger. You may have the right to have it, but give it up anyway. It's not good for you. And then in verse 22, Jesus says, Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now Jesus says, be careful what you say about people. Don't call people names. And even though it seems like Jesus is getting a little bit stranger and stranger, He's talking about how the words that we use towards people and the names that we call people can betray how we hold those people in contempt. And contempt is a close cousin of anger. In anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you're hurt or not. Contempt means to regard someone as less worthy than I am or worth less. And it's easier to do things to harm them because they're less than you are. They're worthy of contempt or loss. You're less likely to grieve over their situation because you figure they deserve it. But anytime we say they deserve it, we as Jesus followers are on shaky ground because the whole foundation of our faith is is built on us not getting what we deserve. In saying, don't hold other people in contempt, Jesus is reminding us of the value of human beings. Even people who are different from us, even people who make different choices, even people we think are wrong. Just saying, don't kill anyone, doesn't begin to address the problem of holding people in contempt doesn't begin to address the ways that anger can destroy community and hurt the people that Jesus came to save. So the answer to contempt is love. Because you can't love someone and hold them in contempt at the same time. But here's the baby step if you can't jump immediately to love to people that you've held in contempt before. The easy step is begin to pray good things for them. Because you can't pray good things for someone and hate them at the same time. Another trick is learn to humanize people. It's awfully easy to just look at people as them, but once you've struck up a conversation with somebody, even if they're wildly different from you, all of a sudden they become human. That's another baby step towards loving people instead of holding them in contempt. And then verses 23 through 26 is actually the positive rather than the negative of this. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So it's still talking about anger, but it's contrasting the right attitude versus the wrong attitude, the right way to handle it versus the wrong thing. So this is the way the person with the right attitude will handle it. So it's important to to understand what Jesus is talking about here because it really gets to the, the difference between being religious and following Jesus. Or how we've talked about over the last several weeks of signing up for a certain set of legalistic ideals, but never really following Jesus in a meaningful sort of way. Or how we've talked about if you accept God's forgiveness and don't extend it to others, you've never really received God's forgiveness. So here's this picture. Here's this person who's worshiping, they're in church, they're caught up in the worship, they're singing about the goodness of God and singing a thousand hallelujahs. And all of a sudden, they remember that they did something to hurt someone else. And that's the force of it. This is not how we read this text. We always read this text as if someone has done something against us. And we need to clear that up. Which has led to some pretty horrific moments. When I've seen people who all of a sudden remember that somebody hurt them. And so they go and confront another person who had really had no idea they ever did anything. That's a complete misreading of the text. The text says this is somebody that you've done something to. So let me put this in the, in the vernacular, all of a sudden you realize you've been a jerk. And in the midst of worship, it's completely inauthentic and probably hypocritical for you to be thanking God for all he's done for you when you've blown up a relationship. The prophets always had a problem with people offering sacrifices while they were morally corrupt or indifferent to what their life should be like because it's always easier to substitute religious behavior for righteousness. But God says some pretty strong things about that, like, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your worship. What I want is for justice to roll down like a mighty water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What I want is for you to do is to learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow. So what's the right thing to do when you realize you're in the wrong? It's to go to the person and make it right. And how do you make it right is really very easy. Say these words, I'm sorry. And then say why you're sorry. And it should be like, I'm sorry for this jerky thing that I said. Say that and then stop. You don't say things like, I'm sorry your feelings got hurt or I'm sorry you're so sensitive, or I'm sorry that I responded to you being a jerk by me being a jerk, because none of those things will accomplish reconciliation. What will accomplish reconciliation is you owning your stuff and go, I'm sorry for this thing that I said to you, period. You just need to own your own stuff. And you can't help what happens next. They might refuse to forgive you, they might still be angry at you, but you've done what you can do. You know God has got you, and that you can trust him at that point. Jesus goes on, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is not a textbook for how Christians should handle lawsuits. It's a textbook about how Christians should value relationships. Don't let bad relationships go unresolved. Work to heal them. Once again, notice that you're the one in the wrong. Let that settle in just a little bit. So this is two illustrations about when, I'll use me instead of you, when I've done something wrong, I've been the jerk. So what is Jesus getting at by using me twice or you in your own situation? What's Jesus getting at? Maybe you take care of you? Maybe get the log out of your eye first, and then you can maybe look for the speck in other people's eyes. Or maybe, as far as it concerns you, take relationships in the kingdom of God seriously. Do everything you can to heal them and keep them righteous. Keep short accounts so things don't fester. This is a further illustration of someone whose heart has been changed, who looks at the difficult situation that they're in, who caused it themselves, and says, I can trust God, I can be wrong, I can be misunderstood, my conscience is clear, I've done everything I can, and if you point out something else I can do, I'll be happy to do that too. So if you look at that, just the things that we've talked about today, why would you not wanna be a part of a community like that? where we give up our right to be angry, we give up our right to hold people in contempt, where we give one another grace, where we go the extra mile, where we acknowledge each other's worth and value and dignity, where we try not to hurt each other, where we do what is best for the cause of Christ, not just for us. People think the Sermon on the Mount sounds crazy. I think it sounds like heaven. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what is most likely to make you angry? Number two, what is one thing you could do that would be more constructive than anger? And number three, in what relationship do you need to seek reconciliation? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel, or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcov.church.